Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Military commanders have wanted for decades to be able to fire the laser. But light-based weapons, it turns out, are really hard to make. Now, thanks to advances in lasers used for other purposes, the battlefield kind are at last starting to shine. And what's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? 42 years ago, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy suggested a novel answer. We take a look at the legacy and the philosophy of the comic sci-fi classic. But first... After weeks of reluctance to do so, the World Health Organization at last labeled COVID-19 a pandemic. We're deeply concerned, both by the alarming levels of spread and severity, and by the alarming levels of inaction. Action in America came in the form of President Donald Trump's announcement of a 30-day ban on travelers from 26 European countries, not including Britain. The virus will not have a chance against us. No nation is more prepared or more resilient than the United States. The jangled nerves of investors put an end to the historic bull run of America's Dow Index. Mr. Trump also outlined plans to provide billions of dollars in loans to small businesses and urged Congress to pass major tax relief measures. Elsewhere, there have been more dramatic moves. Yesterday, the Bank of England cut its key interest rate in a coordinated effort with the government. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, announced a £30 billion spending package. Coronavirus will have a significant impact on our economy, but it will be temporary. I will do whatever it takes to get our nation through it. Later today, the European Central Bank is expected to reveal its own measures to keep the continent's economies afloat. There's no doubt the world economy is facing a significant hit from the pandemic. The question is what to do about it. The biggest response we've seen in the US so far in terms of the economic response to the virus came from the Federal Reserve, which cut interest rates at an emergency meeting last week. Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics correspondent. President Trump is calling for a sort of federal fiscal policy response, but obviously under the US system, that takes time. And what would that policy response involve? So the kind of measures Congress is looking at is the kind of measures other countries have already put in place or are considering. That's things like extending the sick pay regime. It's things like emergency support to keep small businesses in action with soft loans and grants to small businesses. And it's the more general sort of traditional economic stimulus stuff around infrastructure spending and payroll tax cuts. 
I mean, around the world, what countries are trying to do is concentrate resources on supporting households, so you might have to take time off work, and supporting businesses, particularly small businesses, particularly in the consumer sector, who are going to see a lot of you know, big hit to demand in the coming weeks and months. And how would you compare what's, uh, what's being discussed in America with what has actually been offered in, in Britain as of yesterday's budget? So Britain yesterday really went for a shock and all response to this. We saw an emergency rate cut from the Bank of England, sort of first thing, 7 o'clock in the morning, coupled with a big what they're calling a term facility, the Bank of England making available lots of cheap funding for banks tied to lending to particularly small and medium-sized businesses, and then a big package from the Chancellor of the Exchequer in his budget, about a £30 billion immediate stimulus to the economy, that's about... 1.3, 1. 1.4% of GDP, sort of towards the top end of what we've seen so far. And like what the US was talking about, you know, the UK is taking a, a three-pronged approach. So firstly, the Chancellor's basically written a blank check to the NHS. He said whether it's millions or billions they need for crisis response, it's there. There's been an expansion of the sort of sick pay regime, uh, not quite as comprehensive as it could have been, but covering more people by sick pay, and a very, very targeted response on small business who are having um, basically property taxes cut. Some very small businesses are getting an emergency grant. Again, there's going to be soft guaranteed government loans for small businesses. I think actually what was key about the UK response yesterday was you saw this coordination between fiscal policy and monetary policy, which really just gets you more bang for your buck. And in that regard, that's what we're seeing kind of all over the world, a mix of the fiscal and the monetary, the, the, the cash and the cheap debt and what have you. Yeah, and I think it's worth thinking through what kind of crisis we're talking about here. You know, when you're thinking about an economic shock, you know, a, a demand shock when, you know, suddenly people are spending less, that's something policymakers know how to respond to. You just cut taxes or you cut interest rates or you, you know, get more lending out of the door. But what we're dealing with here is both a demand shock and also a supply shock. Um, you know, firms are having an absence of workers, um, which obviously means they can produce less causes lots of problems with supply chains. There was someone from the automotive industry saying yesterday, I thought really summed it up, it takes two and a half thousand parts to make a car. You've only got to be missing one part not to make a car. So, you know, these supply chains, you get this disruption to, um, to supply. So that's quite hard for policymakers because in a classic demand shock, you know, you know what you're doing. In a supply shock, uh, things get a bit harder. You know, you can't make people better for economic policy, but what you can do is cushion the blow. Look, in the end, you know, I buy, I tend to buy a coffee on my way into work. If I end up self-quarantining for two weeks, I'm probably not going to buy 11 coffees on my first Monday back in the office. So the coffee shop, they're facing a, you know, an impact from me not buying coffees for two weeks. That's a fundamentally sound coffee shop, we assume. But you know, policy has to be supporting it during that two-week period, well, the next few weeks and months, stopping businesses going to the wall. So what we're seeing around the world is fiscal policymakers and monetary policymakers trying to find ways to keep particularly small and medium-sized enterprises who are otherwise sound alive. So as of yesterday, according to the World Health Organization, this is a pandemic. Does that suggest perhaps a a global coordinated economic response is called for? Absolutely. One lesson that we relearned in 2008-2009 was that when policymakers across countries, fiscal and monetary, coordinate their responses, you get more bang for your buck. It works more effectively. We saw a statement from the G7 Group of Advanced Economies the other day Financial markets didn't like it because it was just a statement with no policy action attached. I was speaking to a former UK Treasury official yesterday. They were saying, look, you've seen the Federal Reserve cut interest rates. You've seen the Bank of Canada cut rates. The Bank of England has cut rates. The European Central Bank is presumably going to move 
these should have all happened on the same day. It would have been a much more effective stimulus if everyone had at the same day said, look, we are taking this seriously. But you look at the tone of that statement from the Oval Office we saw overnight, and it doesn't seem like we've got much cooperation at the moment. Big moves and, and even coordinated ones will have some effect, but but how big in the face of a pandemic now as, as, as we have and the, the panic that comes with it? How much can any of these policy changes really matter, do you think? Well, I think over the next few weeks and months, you know, the people you should be asking are sort of epidemiologists rather than economists because there is a lot of uncertainty out there about how bad this virus is going to be, how long it's going to last for, how bad the spread's going to be. And, you know, the, the raw sort of health factors which determine the size of the economic hit so policy is to that extent, yes, it's a band-aid, but band-aids are helpful. Uh, we, you know, we shouldn't forget that it's better than just bleeding out once, you, once you're cut. So this is about cushioning the blow. First step, trying to avoid a recession. Secondly, if we do get into a recession, making sure it's the, you know, the mildest type of recession we can, we can have. That's what policy is about at the moment. Duncan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Laser weapons are a mainstay of science fiction. Ray guns go as far back as H.G. Wells' 1898 novel, The War of the Worlds, where aliens zapped humans into a smoky dance of lurid flames. It has to be said, lasers are just the right tool for all kinds of jobs, from eye surgery to grocery scanners, to what I did back when I was a research scientist looking into some of nature's fastest processes. But making laser rifles, or other so-called directed energy weapons, has proved much more difficult than military commanders might have liked. In 1934, Britain's air ministry offered £1,000 to anyone who could kill a sheep at 180 metres. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor. About 10 years after that, all that Japan could manage was killing a rabbit at 30 metres, and it took 10 minutes. So not exactly a spectacular death ray. Now, there were several false starts in laser weapons over the subsequent decades, but it does seem they are now finally approaching the battlefield. But wait a minute, what is the alleged benefit of laser weapons in the first place when we have so many other kinds of weapons? Well, there are obviously lots of ways to blow something up or zap it with bullets or bombs or shells. But if you think about missile defense, shooting down incoming missiles, there's a big cost problem. You know, you could be spending millions of dollars to shoot an incoming missile or a rocket that costs thousands of dollars. You might also run out of ammunition. You know, if you have hundreds or thousands of incoming projectiles, you're at some point going to run out of things to hurl up at them and knock them out of the sky. The big advantage of laser weapons is, in theory, as long as you have enough electricity to power them, you can keep zapping them. You know, there's no ammunition, there's no shortage, you just keep going on and on, and you can knock them out the sky or zap them out the sky at the speed of light. It sounds sensible enough in principle, but I know myself that it is a very, very hard thing to pull off in practice. What are the false starts that, that you're aware of in this business? 
The first laser is invented in 1960. And in the decades after that, you have some wild ideas. Ronald Reagan famously wants to put lasers in space to shoot down ballistic missiles as part of his so-called Star Wars initiative, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And that didn't happen. There are no missile-busting space lasers in orbit right now. But... Ten years ago, America successfully tested a megawatt-class laser. This is a seriously powerful laser that was designed to shoot down enemy missiles as they were taking off in their so-called boost phase. And it worked. It managed to do that. The slight problem was that this weapon weighed 17, 18 tons. It was so big that it had to be mounted on a Boeing 747, and it used this toxic soup of corrosive chemicals. So, you know, what more would you want than a jumbo jet full of noxious chemicals loitering around an enemy battlefield in a wartime? You know, what could be safer than that? So unsurprisingly, this program, the Airborne Laser, was cancelled in 2011, having blown through $5 billion. It was widely seen as a failed experiment in trying to come up with a laser that could take out an enemy missile on a serious scale. And yet the engineers have persisted, and you say these lasers are closer than ever to the battlefield. What's changed? So for one thing, chemical lasers are not seen as the big promising route that they once were. We now have something called solid-state lasers. So in a solid-state laser, you have a laser diode. These are things that are commercially available, used for all sorts of non-military purposes, to stimulate another material that then emits the laser for the weapon. And by doing that, you get away from using noxious chemicals, which require all kinds of plumbing and corrosive substance management and all these things, and you have a much more compact, a much more efficient weapon that is emitting laser light at what the Pentagon tells me is a much lower wavelength. It goes farther, it's a narrower beam, and it isn't absorbed by water vapor. All of that stuff is really good if you're trying to get a small, portable weapon that you need to be able to lug around the battlefield. In other words, a weapon that you don't need an entire jumbo jet to carry around. And so where is this stuff now? Where does the technology stand and when will we see it used? Well, the joke always used to be that laser weapons were five years away and always will be five years away. You know, there was hype around this field, and to some extent there still is. But there's stuff being tested. So in 2014, the U.S. tested a laser weapon with the power of 30 kilowatts on a U.S. ship. 30 kilowatts is not huge, but it was found to be enough to sort of take out small drones or small boats that might be coming at you. It's the output of an average home boiler, for example. A 60-kilowatt system is going to be fitted on a U.S. destroyer this year, and steadily bigger ones, perhaps up to about 150 kilowatts or so, on bigger ships at some point very soon. So the long and short of it is we're seeing tests occurring at an increasing pace, and these are mainly to take out drones, very small aircraft, speedboats, nothing big, but equally you know, a big problem when you have challenges from drones that we've seen in places like Saudi Arabia and other battlefields in the last few years. All of this discussion has been about the development of laser weapons, but that's not the only kind of directed energy weapon out there, right? No, and in fact, different sorts of directed energy weapons like microwave or specifically high-powered microwaves can do some quite nifty things that lasers can't. What the Pentagon tells me is if you have a field of incoming drones, say a dozen of them coming at your base or your vehicle, A laser would have to target each one individually to take it down. A high-powered microwave weapon can have what's called area effects. In a single pulse, it can mess up the electronics of all of them simultaneously. And lots of those air defense systems that are being tested today, specifically the counter-drone systems, are not lasers. They are, in fact, high-powered microwaves. So that still has its own technological challenges, 
but instead of a narrow, focused beam, it's a sort of broad effect across an entire area. And what we see uh, militaries in the US and elsewhere working on both of these in parallel, not just one or the other. It does sound like all of this is coming along in leaps and bounds, but it's still not at that kind of planet-destroying science fiction level of ray gun, and and far from it, right? It's not even at a missile-destroying state of ray gun. The DoD says that their aim is to get to 500 kilowatts in 2024. That's a lot. You can take out some, you know, light aircraft with that, but you can't take out a really big Russian cruise missile or a Chinese ballistic missile zooming at your ship. That's going to require much more power. And then, of course, there are all sorts of other technical challenges. Where do you get all the electricity for this? Where do you channel the heat that's being generated? You know, you can fit this on an aircraft carrier or a warship, but can you fit it on an aircraft without making it huge? So this is progress, but there's still a lot of work to be done to fulfill the real aim, which, going back to Reagan, is still to be able to shoot down big ballistic missiles coming at you at low cost. Shishang, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This year, the arts world will mark 150 years since Charles Dickens' death, 200 years since the birth of Anne Bronte, and 250 years since the birth of William Wordsworth. Anniversaries like these normally come in round numbers. But this month, there's a more unusual celebration, 42 years since The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy first entered our universe. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an amazing book, both... uh inside itself and also as a book that uh, you and I can read. It's uh, a book to guide people through the galaxy and it's uh, a guide to uh, life, the universe and everything for the rest of us. David Brennan writes about culture for The Economist. It started off as a radio play. The Hitchhiker's Guide originally went out on uh, March the 8th, 1978 as a radio play on the BBC and then became a book which was uh, a huge success and that kicked off its its international renown and it's since uh, been TV series, uh, a film, a stage play. People of Earth, I regret to inform you that in order to make way for the new hyperspace express route, your planet has been scheduled for demolition. Have a nice day. Hang on, we're hitching a ride. Although its visual manifestations, I don't think have ever quite captured it the, the way it does as, as pure words. I don't remember the radio play, but I do remember the book from, uh, from when I was a kid and enjoyed it immensely. But for the uninitiated, why celebrate the 42nd anniversary? Because the number 42 is the, uh, it's the central joke, if it is a joke, of the whole Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, it turns out after a, um, a supercomputer thinks about uh, the question for seven and a half million years that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. Unfortunately, this proves to be less than enlightening, at which point the computer points out that the problem is that uh, the people asking the question had never really thought about what the question was. So then they have to go in search of the question. In a lot of ways, it, the, the framing of the whole book is a, is a fairly... British story, how do you think it has that sort of international uh, uh, galactic appeal? It's a very good question as to why something so distinctively British should have had such appeal. 14 million is a a lot of books for uh, for any uh, series to sell, and it's been translated into into multiple languages and sold in multiple editions. And I think partly... um, there's a strain of British humor which travels very well. For instance, Monty Python did the same thing, and it's not a, a million miles away from, from that kind of humor. And I think partly as well, it was the combination of 
a very humorous approach to deeply serious ideas that caught people's imagination. I think that's something that probably uh, chimes universally because you know people like to think about serious things, but people also like to be entertained while they're thinking about it. And I think Douglas Adams really hit on something there. So that, that's what got it kind of around the world. But how does it? How does that get it sort of down the ages? Four decades on, we're still talking about it. Everybody knows the gags. I think that's because of the books. I think if it had just been a radio series or just been a TV show or a film, it might not have had that impact. But uh, books are things that tend to be handed down and they're very easily transferable. And one of the great qualities of Adam's writing is that it's deceptively frivolous. You know, you'll be reading and chuckling along and afterwards you'll stop and you'll think, hang on, that was actually a profound idea. And it's almost as if you take in the ideas by osmosis without even noticing because they've been they've been sweetened with this humor. So it is still celebrated, but in a, in a general sense, how has it been? How is it being celebrated now? Celebrations have varied from, I suppose, as you would expect, the quite geeky with it being you know a, a sci-fi book and um, project. Uh, but they've also become a lot wider. For example, there is Towel Day, which a lot of people celebrate an- annually. Why is that? Because in The Hitchhiker's Guide, a towel is the most fabulously useful thing that a hitchhiker can carry around with them. It says the compliment for somebody who um, who knows what they're doing, that they know where their towel is. And it's been celebrated in, in quite a few unusual ways. I mean, for example, a little while ago, a Norwegian public transport firm issued towels with microchips in them on towel day so that people could have free rides uh, when they use these towels on Norwegian public transport. So it has become quite mainstream. And fair to say that its influence is, if not in the literal sense galactic, then certainly in uh, the earthbound sense, universal. David, so long, and thanks for all the fish. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.